National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, February 16th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. I'm going to start today's show on a quick personal note. A month ago, my co-author, David Bruns, and I launched our fifth novel, Command and Control. Last week, we launched our sixth novel, Counter-Strike. Our new publisher, Severn River Publishing, planned it this way. Sort of a back-to-back right out of the gate with the uh, the new series. As of right now, Command and Control has 250 reviews, and Counter-Strike, after only one week, has 175 reviews. David and I couldn't be more thrilled with the support we're receiving from readers of our national security thriller novels. If you're interested in our books, you can find them on Amazon, and again, that's Command and Control and Counter-Strike by David Bruns and J.R. Olson. Now, now on to our show. I'm sure most of you have been paying attention to the events transpiring in Eastern Europe. We've seen tensions flare up between Russia and the United States and our European allies over Ukraine. We know the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are deeply concerned about Russia's actions, and we know other former Soviet areas are also under pressure from Moscow. One of the more interesting situations in Eastern Europe is the country of Belarus. That nation sits on the boundary line between Poland and Lithuania and provides a northern border to Ukraine. It's geostrategically important for many, many reasons. We have with us today a guest who can educate us on the political, economic, and security situation regarding Belarus, as he recently served at the U.S. Embassy in Minsk as a State Department Foreign Service officer. Mark Jorgensen is a Minnesota native who just retired after over 24 years of working around the world for American national security interests. He worked for CIA for 10 years, then spent the last 14 years as a diplomat at the U.S. Department of State as a Foreign Service Officer. Mark Jorgensen's overseas assignments include several countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union, as well as assignments in Asia and Africa. His final assignment was at the U.S. Embassy in Minsk, Belarus, from which he was kicked out, or PNG'd, persona non grata, as we say, in August of 2021. In addition to his native English, Mark speaks Russian, French, and and somewhere in the depths of his brain, he says, Korean still hides out. Mark Jorgensen, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. And just want to say that uh, we're getting kicked out of Belarus as a great badge of honor, (laughs) knowing that Lukashenko said, Jorgensen, get out. (laughs) Yeah, that is a badge of honor. I know a few people who have been PNG'd out of other countries. It's kind of an interesting experience. Yes, it is. Uh, So, Mark, let's get started. There's a lot I'd like to cover with you today. Belarus, like I said, is just a fascinating uh, country, especially with everything that's going on. But let's let's start a little bit with your career. You're a Minnesota native. Uh, I try to do my best with this show to help help uh, young people see opportunities and career paths in the national security arena. Can you tell us a little bit briefly about how you got into CIA and then your transition over to the Department of State to become a foreign service officer? I suspect suspect there are a lot of parents and grandparents who listen to this show, maybe live or, or recorded on podcasts and whatnot, who would love to be able to tell their high school students. Uh, about these career path opportunities. Yeah. Well, first of all, great careers, um, without a doubt. Had had more fun, and, and grandparents and parents will say, look, if you have a job you love, it's not work. And I can say every day I went to work was fun. Yeah. Um, it was not a job. It was fun. Um, but I grew up in southwestern Minnesota, Marshall, Minnesota, a small farming community, no idea that I was ever going to go overseas. Um, graduated from Marshall, 
uh, went to University at Hamlin. Uh, my junior year at Hamlin did a J term overseas. And while my friends uh, from Hamlin were going to study the coral reefs of Key West in the beach sand of Hawaii. They had it right, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think they did have it right. Yeah. Uh, Mark says, oh, I think I'll go to the Soviet Union in January. <laughs> um, anyway, I got there and literally two days after being in, started in Kiev, Kiev of all places, I said, I know what I want to do. I yeah. want to work and live overseas. Um, so as a result of that, finished up at Hamlin, uh, started graduate school at St. Thomas in their international management program. Um, of all things, saw an ad in the paper, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. You know, do you want to work overseas? CIA. I thought, yeah, I want to work overseas. So sent a resume in. Didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything. And then got a phone call one day. Yeah. Interested in interviewing. Absolutely. <laughs> Went out to Washington, interviewed. Um, ultimately, it took me about a year to, to enter on duty at the agency. Um, but started there, and um, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Spent ten years at at the agency. Ultimately, left the agency um, because of some uh, family decisions. Came back to Minnesota. Um, got the travel bug again as a result of doing some work with USA Hockey and our okay. national teams traveling to Russia. All right. Um, took the foreign service exam, and off I go again. Um, so and, and 14 years as a foreign service officer. 14 years as a foreign service officer. What, what were, where were you posted as a foreign service officer? Um, Seoul, South Korea. Okay. Uh, Tashkent, Uzbekistan. Dakar, Senegal. Chisinau, Moldova. And finally, Minsk. Okay. That is a wide variety of opportunities to see the world. Yes. Saw a lot of the world. Um, I've probably, between my... Uh, PCS or permanent changes of station or, or where you pick up and move and live uh, for two or three years, and my TDY work, temporary duty work, I've probably been in, I would guess, I've never really counted, but probably 80 to 85, maybe 90 countries in the world. Wow. So lots of travel opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, parents and grandparents, I hope you're listening. Yeah. It, it, and it is a great career. It yeah. really is. If, if you want to get overseas, if you want to live and work overseas— uh, it's a great way to do it. It's a it's a great job. It's a great career. Yeah. So, Mark, moving on to our core topic for today, Belarus. There's lots to cover. Uh, you talk about the process of assigning you to the U.S. Embassy in Minsk. I mean, what 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 length of language training did you have to receive? What kind of security training? And unclassified, of course, right? We don't want to get of into course. any classified stuff that we have to go through when we're when we're going to go to those assignments. Or any other preparation, maybe, that the State Department gave you before they sent you to Belarus, because we know Belarus is, is not like normal normal countries. <laughs> yeah, definitely not like normal countries. Um, the, the assignment system in the State Department or the Foreign Service um, is actually quite simple. Essentially, you have to go out and find a new job every two or three years. Okay. Uh, you get a large list of, of open uh, positions around the world, and you can sort of pick and choose. And you have to send resumes off. You have to interview. You have to do that sort of stuff. So um, I saw the Minsk job on the open list. I thought that'd be a fun place to go. Um, already knew some Russian. Um, okay. Did the bidding, did the interviewing, was actually assigned to the position. Um, 
since there's a language requirement for the position, it's what we would call an out-year bid. Basically, you're bidding two years in advance so okay. you can get the language training and then ultimately have time to get to post. Um, I did get about six months of Russian. I already knew some Russian from previous uh, postings overseas. So I did get some uh, Russian, Russian refresher. I did take some other sort of technical training specific to the job, uh, which I was doing as management officer at the embassy in Minsk, and um, ultimately got on a plane and, and headed off. The interesting thing was, um, and we'll talk about it more, I think, but there was questions whether or not people would get visas to get into Belarus. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the relationship had soured quite a bit by then. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'd actually been in Belarus before. I helped open the embassy building in 1993. Okay. Um, so I wasn't even sure I was going to get a visa. Ultimately did get a visa, so I hopped on a plane and got there as quick as I could. All right. So you arrive in Minsk. Uh, what what did you find going back that second time since you opened the embassy in '93? Clearly, the, the the nation had changed. I mean, what was it like going back uh, for the official assignment then as a member of the U.S. Embassy, the country team? Uh, what did it feel like as an American to enter into a country dominated by one man, Lukashenko, for so many years? Yeah, it was like going back in time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, I, it, you know, it, it was like being back in the Soviet Union again, with the exception of the fact that there were more cars on the street and there were actually food and clothes in the shops. Okay. Um, Lukashenko has had such control over that country. Um, and, and he's still, you know, again, my opinion, and, and again, Today I'm talking about my opinion, not sure. official, right. you know, U.S. policy. But yeah. we should say you are retired from the Department of State. Yes, yep. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. So um, he's had such control over this country, and and he continues to run it like the Soviet Union. Um, you know, I've been in a lot of former Soviet countries now, and a lot of them have tried to sort of, in some senses, wipe away that history. Lukashenko definitely hasn't tried to do that and in fact i would say continues to play it up so um my wife sue originally didn't go with me but i would write back to her i'd email her i'd skype with her zoom with her and and say sue it, it's like being back in moscow in 1985 <laughs> um you know on the surface things work it's clean the infrastructure works you know the public transport is good. Um, you can really find anything you want to buy in the shops there. On the surface, it looks good. Then you start peeling away the layers of the onion, and yeah. it starts to get very crazy. So uh, you arrive there, you look at it, and you say, wow, this is a great place. And then you peel the layers of the onion back. And not so much. Yeah. Not so much. Let, let's talk specifically about, about Lukashenko. Uh, what can you tell us about him? I, I know you've had I from I've heard anecdotally from other people that you've had some direct uh, engagement with <laughs> with Lukashenko. Uh, how long has he been in control in Belarus? Uh, what kind of country has he created in this post-Soviet era, so to speak? Yeah, so Lukashenko has been in charge of Belarus basically since 1994. 
Um, He came out of the Soviet system. He was the head of of an agro-enterprise, basically a large farm uh, in Belarus, a large agricultural enterprise. Um, 1994 was elected president the first time. And like many authoritarians, um, between 94 and and really 2000, early 2000s, made a lot of constitutional changes um, so that he could sort of gather his power and hold on to power. And that's kind of how he's created the country, um, sort of with the understanding that he's the guy in charge, um, he's the one making the decisions, and ultimately he he can determine what is going to get done or not get done, who's going to be you know, who who the winners and losers are going to be, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, very authoritarian, very much in charge, um, and and that's the way he's built the country. Okay. And, and continued to run it. And I know he's a big fan of hockey, so your uh, hockey background might have been uh, made for some interesting connections. Yeah, so um, <laughs> between my time at the agency and, and the Foreign Service, uh, one of my uh, careers was as the executive director of Minnesota Hockey, which saw the youth hockey in the state. Uh, we put together a group, and we actually went over to Belarus and did some work with their National Hockey Association. And part of that was Lukashenko is a huge hockey guy. He has his own president's team, which is made up of Olympians and professional players and that sort of stuff. Lukashenko apparently hears that we have this group of American and Canadian hockey coaches in town. Well, let's play a hockey game. <laughs> you know, we're thinking, great, yeah, absolutely, we'd love to. Um, you know, we're thinking Saturday morning. You know, go out, have a little bit of fun. You know, afterwards. No, this was a big deal. Um, so it was in the main, one of the big main arenas in Minsk. Um, there were about 8,500 people at the game. Oh, my God. A- a- apparently, people were told to go to the game. All right. It was on national TV. Um, so it's not a pickup hockey game. This was not a pickup <laughs> hockey game by any sense of the imagination. Um, you know, as coaches, we brought our skates and sticks and gloves and stuff, but we had no uniforms. We had no, you know, the president's team comes out in their, you know, professional level uniforms and former Olympians and stuff. Anyway, before the game, we're in our dressing room and somebody from the president's security detail comes in and sees and says through an interpreter, all right, guys, understand there are three rules to this game <laughs> and only three rules. The first rule is the president's team always wins. <laughs> the second rule is that the president always comes out of the quarter with a puck. And the third rule is if anybody touches the president, you are unlikely to be able to leave Belarus. <laughs> <laughs> so we played the game. The president's team won. Um, afterwards, got a chance to actually shake his hand and say thank you and that sort of thing. Uh, received a nice bottle of the president's vodka as a you know parting gift um, consolation prize after consolation losing. <laughs> prize yeah but again uh, but that's the the type of guy he is he he really doesn't do anything small he sort of goes all in on this stuff um you know 8500 people in the arena national tv for you know what we thought was going to be a little pickup hockey game 
So clearly the man knows how to create theater uh, to make himself look good. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, so for our, our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is former Foreign Service Officer Mark Jorgensen, and we're discussing Belarus. Uh, so let's dive a little more in, into Belarus. Uh, what can you tell us about the Belarusian economy? Uh, what are their major industries? Uh, what do they export, if anything? Do they, do they, do they rely heavily on imports? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Give, give us a feel for how people earn a living in Belarus. Yeah, so Belarus is definitely still a centrally planned economy. Um, the government really still owns most means of production. Most, I mean, it, it's, again, still like the old Soviet state. Um, the government employs people. Most people um, owns the factories, is really in charge of the economy and planning the economy. Um, so, uh, again, huge subsidies the government has to put into the economy to keep it running. What do they produce? Um, they produce some heavy machinery. If you travel Eastern Europe, you see a lot of uh, Belarusian buses, a lot of Belarusian heavy equipment used in mining and earth moving. Um, one of the the big things that you can actually even see in the U.S. they used to export before sanctions, um, Belarusian tractors. Okay. Um, so a lot of lot of heavy equipment is is what they export throughout Europe, some to North America. Um, they they were before sanctions again a big exporter of potash, which is used for fertilizer. Mm-hmm. That was actually one of their biggest exports. Um, they have very little energy there, so they import all of their natural gas. I think almost almost 100% of their natural gas is imported from Russia. Most of their oil is imported from Russia. Um, they refine Russian oil and then export it from there on behalf of the Russians. So, um, and, and interestingly enough, it, like in many of these former Soviet uh, republics, now independent countries, there's a real dichotomy between the older generation and the younger generation. The older generation who grew up in the Soviet system, the planned economy, basically not paid much, didn't work much, but given your apartments and medical care, that sort of stuff, it's been a tough transition, very difficult transition. Younger generation, though, now getting into technology, getting into um, uh, computer programming, those sorts of things, the high-tech industries, they've actually done very well. Um, okay. And in a lot of cases, up until you know August of 2020, you had a lot of young Belarusians who would work the high-tech industry in Europe, getting paid European wages, still living in Belarus. Um, so they actually did very well. So there's, is there good inter- internet connectivity in Belarus? There is good internet connectivity, uh, probably other than all the tappings on my internet connection <laughs> yeah, and stuff right. at my house. Um, yeah. I had I had very good high-speed internet, um, and actually it's very cheap. I mean, my high-speed internet, I got almost one gig service, um, 25 bucks a month. Internet service providers here in America, are you listening? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can be done. Right, right. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the health care system in Belarus. I'm, I'm always curious about how countries take care of their citizens uh, with regards to health care. Is, is it a good system? or it, You know, it's a, it's a fairly good system for the basic stuff. 
But again, what what people are seeing is that for anything that's a little bit more complicated, they're tending to go to Europe for their health care. Okay. Um, Belarus has very good um, uh, health statistics. I mean, their their infant mortality rate is very very low. Um, you know, a lot of their their sort of disease statistics are are very low. It's it's very good. Basic care generally pretty good, um, but once you get into anything a little bit more complicated, most people that can afford it are going off to Europe. You know, interestingly enough, uh, when COVID hit, um, a nobody's really sure what the COVID numbers were in Belarus, just because the statistics are unreliable. Yeah, the health department and any other government department really doesn't put out good data. Uh, they put out whatever data, data Lukashenko tells them. To put that's, out. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know, but Lukashenko was the guy who said, "Oh, COVID. Well, what's the big problem? You know, drive tractors, drink vodka, go to the sauna, go to the banya, <laughs> and those three things would take care of it. You wouldn't have to worry about COVID." Fair enough. Um, yeah, I think they found otherwise. While I was there for the short time that I was there before getting kicked out. Um, COVID was running pretty rampant, yeah. and and a lot of people had it. And again, sort of as part of the the migration of younger people out of Belarus, especially after August 2020 in the elections, um, a lot of elderly people left in in Belarus, and they were getting hit pretty hard. Yeah. So we should be clear with the audience, uh, Belarus is not connected to the European Union economic zone. It is not. So they are pretty much tied completely to uh, Russia from an economic perspective. Yeah, from an economic perspective, especially after recent sanctions or sanctions since August 2020, they, they're almost completely reliant on, on Russian subsidies for their economy and, and the trade between the two countries. Yeah. I mean, that's really where their trade now lies is to the east with Russia. And I suspect uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, is really happy with that arrangement. I'm sure he is not <laughs> sad about that. Um, you know, the, the, yeah, he, he's, he has Belarus where he wants it. Yeah. And, and it's clear um, that Belarus essentially is beholden at this point to Putin and Russia. Yeah, we'll get into more of that in a, in a, in a little bit uh, we discussed that uh, Lukashenko has been in control of Belarus since '94. Tell us a little bit about the politics in Belarus. Uh, there, there has to be some sort of opposition movement. We know that the election did not go well for Lukashenko in, in uh, it was August of 2020. August of 2020, and that there were some uh, some strong uh, protests as a result of of the election results. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I can tell you that today there is essentially n no in-country opposition party. It's it's all underground. Most opposition politicians, in, including Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, who we'll talk about a little bit later, has, has moved on to Lithuania. Um, other opposition politicians who tried to run against Lukashenko in August of 2020 uh, were either jailed or left country before they were going to get arrested and jailed. Um, so today there's, you know, essentially no re no real opposition political parties in Belarus. They've, they've been shut down, literally shut down. Um, but prior to the August 2020 elections, you know, things were starting to look as though they were opening up a little bit. 
Um, there were some opposition political parties, um, in a lot of cases driven by personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, but as part of the August 2020 election, I think Lukashenko sort of figured out that this is not something he wanted um, and essentially found found the legal ways to shut these people and opposition parties down. Um he didn't want the genie to get too far out of the bottle. <laughs> no, I, you know, again, he he saw what happened in in Russia, yeah, uh, in in ninety one and after that, he's seen what has happened with the color revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia yeah. and you know some other Eastern European countries. He said, you know, that is not going to happen here, and basically shut things down. So as of today, there's really no opposing political parties left in Belarus. They've all sort of left. Um, But to sort of tell you how crazy it really gets is um, prior to the August 2020 election. Could you tell us about that election? Yeah. So in August 2020, um, Belarus held a, a presidential election. It was time for one, so they held a presidential election. There were actually two major opposition figures who were running and who were doing quite well. Um, and they were both arrested, thrown in jail. And, and there were a couple other minor opposition parties, but essentially nothing was left over. Well, one of the major opposition parties, um, uh, candidates, uh, Tikhanov, was thrown in jail. His wife, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, picked up the baton and said, well, okay, I'll run. Um, she was a school teacher, literally a school teacher, but her husband was a opposition party member. She picked up the baton, ultimately ran in the election against Lukashenko. Um, the official vote tally showed that Lukashenko had about 80% of the vote, and, and I guess nicely gave Tikhanovskaya about 10%, and the other 10% was split amongst some other minor, minor uh, candidates. Uh, c- clearly, n- nobody that looked at that election thought it was free and fair. Yeah. Um, n- nobody. And so as a result of that, the Belarusians said, you know, we've had enough of that. And had huge protests, literally you know, eighty to 100,000 people out on the streets of wow. Minsk protesting. Lukashenko cracked down, sent out the police, the security forces, even the military in some cases, hmm. a, a mass of arrests of people. Um, the protests continued for a while, but finally got to the point where so many people had been arrested. Lukashenko put put so much pressure on it that people just sort of decided uh, we better step back a little bit here. Before the shooting starts. Before the shooting starts, yeah. Yeah. As a result, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya um, was essentially told to leave the country. Um, She did with her her children. Her husband actually is still in Belarus in jail. Um, She's now in Lithuania, and and she has sort of coalesced the opposition – to Lukashenko from Lithuania. Um, but again, it, it got so crazy. The opposition party's colors were red and white. 
old Belarusian colors, the old, old Belarusian flag before the Soviet Union days was red and white. Um, if While I was there, um, people were getting arrested on the street because they were wearing red and white clothing. <laughs> you have the wrong colors on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was opposition party colors, and, and people were being arrested for that stuff. You know, parents were were being harassed by the security services because their eight-year-old child in school was using red and white to color, you know, things they were doing in school. And parents would get called in by the security services. Uh, we had a number of our local employees in the embassy, of course, who were, A, harassed by security services, B, arrested by security services, um, yeah, and we should be clear that at most U.S. embassies around the world, the United States hires a lot of local nationals to serve in various roles in the embassy itself. Yeah, we had the embassy, uh, we had about 22 Americans, and I think we had about 130 local staff, Belarusians, who yeah. worked in the embassy and did different jobs for us. Um, in particular, those those are local staff members. The, the, the Belarusian government can't do anything to us as Americans. We have diplomatic immunity. The worst they can do is kick us out of the country. Like happened to you. Like happened to me. <laughs> um, you know, not the worst thing in the world. Upsets your life for a little bit, but not the worst thing in the world. Our local staff are Belarusian citizens, and and they're there. They live there. They're, you know, they have no real protection other than the embassy, um, but they were getting harassed. They were getting arrested. Um, and ultimately, a number of them decided that it was just time to leave the country and, yeah. and to move on. And they still have the freedom to do that. They do. Um, and and some of them avail themselves of that opportunity. Yeah. Yes. T- tell us about what, what led up to your getting PNG'd or declared persona non grata and uh, invited to depart Minsk. What, what, what precipitated all that? So... Um, and we should be clear to the people listening that in the game of power geopolitics, uh, members of the Foreign Service are often treated in this way as just a – it's like a, a chess move uh, between countries. And so it's sending a message. It's you know nothing that anybody actually yeah. does, but, yeah. but it's a message that Lukashenko is delivering to America with this. Yeah. So as, as – let me, let me go all the way back to 2019 um, – Lukashenko got upset with Putin because he raised the price of oil, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, was part of the subsidy of the Belarusian economy. He wasn't happy with that. So, you know, again, Lukashenko may be a little crazy in my opinion, but he's not stupid. Yeah. Um, did, did the geopolitical thing and started to play the east off to the west. Started to make um, overtures to the west, to the U.S., and said, hey, you know, I don't like what's going on in the East. What can you do for me? And the U.S. stepped up and said, yeah, we'll help you out. We'll, we'll sell you oil. Um, and there had, the, the embassy in Minsk had been basically shut down in, in 2004. Uh, it had been closed for about 12 or 13 years, essentially closed. There were a few Americans there, caretaker operations. Um, so as a result of this opening in 2019, um, we actually did sell oil to Belarus. The U.S. did sell oil to Belarus, um, and the State Department and Lukashenko came to an agreement that, hey, let's sort of ramp things up again. Looks like things are going to go well. 
let's reopen our embassies let's let's send ambassadors to each other countries again and we'll do that and things were really looking good um the election in 2020 happens, August of 2020. The Belarusian elections. The Belarusian elections <laughs> in August of 2020. The yeah. protests, um, essentially the, the human rights abuses that Lukashenko is doing to protesters and, and you know squashing democracy and that sort of stuff. So the U.S. puts sanctions on him. He's not, now he's not happy with that. So again, not being a stupid guy, he turns back to the east and Who's there waiting for him? Right. With open Putin. arms. Yeah. Putin. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, no, we're brothers in arms. We're, it's all good. Um, so the relationship took a little bit of a dip. Um, after the sanctions and Lukashenko looked east again, well, again, the crazy things that happened in May of 2021, Lukashenko literally hijacks right. a European aircraft, European airline. Forced it down with his Forced it down. Air Force. Yeah, with his Air Force because there was an opposition journalist on that plane and it was flying over Belarusian space. Forced it down, took the opposition journal off, journalist off of it, let the plane go on to Vilnius, Lithuania. U.S. put sanctions on him again. Now things are really not good. He, at that point, we had about 20, 22, 21 or 22 or maybe 23 Americans, he downsizes the embassy the first time. That happened June of 2021. So he orders people out. So he PNGs orders people or, out. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, you get the nice diplomatic note from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you know, saying, we think you should downsize your embassy to such and such. And, yeah. Um, so th things kind of limp along. And again, uh, at that point, I get a visa go to Belarus thinking, I'm not even going to get a visa to go. Um, so I get there in July, August 9th, um, again, as a result of Lukashenko not really owning up to what he's been doing and continuing to quash um, democracy. Um, the U.S. puts tighter sanctions on him and, and some of his cronies in, in Belarus. Again, he's not happy. Um, August, I guess it was the 12th or 13th, 14th maybe. Um, again, we get the note from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying, we think you need to downsize your embassy to five Americans. <laughs> um, and and that's kind of when, you know, the, the last of the PNGs or the kicking out happens. But again, as a result of uh, economic sanctions, the U.S. put on Lukashenko in Belarus because of his actions. Right. Um, in quashing democracy and, and hijacking an airline. So you, you went through all that training, brushed up on your Russian, uh, prepared to move over there, sent, went over there, and you, you were basically there for, what, about 45 days? <laughs> yeah, I think I made it for six weeks. <laughs> um, along with some of my other colleagues, uh, in the second tranche, there were six of us. So there were six of us in that second tranche that got kicked out. And it's a pretty short notice thing, too, right? They yeah, it's a short notice thing. We we were actually fairly lucky. Um, normally, in these actions, you you literally are told you need to leave within seventy two hours. Yeah, um, we actually had about ten days. Okay, um, which was nice. And 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 lucky for me, um, 
I literally just went up the road to Vilnius, Lithuania, and helped open a, a new office at the embassy there that dealt with uh, Belarus issues. And our ambassador, Julie Fisher, um, is actually up in Vilnius, Lithuania, working on Belarus issues now from there. Okay. So, and, and, and you know, all this stuff happens, and, and it takes place, and it upsets your, your – it upsets my life for a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, again, we have our local employees there who, in some cases, have nowhere to go, and, yeah. and the, the harassment continues. Yeah, they pay a much bigger price. Yes. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is former Foreign Service Officer Mark Jorgensen, and we're discussing Belarus. Uh, so, Mark, let's get into the really complex situation uh, for Belarus and the region. Well, tell us a little bit more about the relationship between Belarus and Russia. Um, so now, again, a very tight relationship. Again, uh, Putin has essentially put Lukashenko in a situation, and, and Lukashenko has fallen into it, where he, he's completely beholden to Russia. Is, is he just a puppet now for Putin? Uh, my opinion is yes. Okay. Um and to be honest with you, my opinion is that Putin would like to get rid of Lukashenko, <laughs> but at this point he m- might not have a better option. Um, so, yeah, he's essentially a puppet. The economy is completely reliant on on Russia because of sanctions. Uh, Europe, they, it's very difficult to export anything from Belarus, uh, difficult to even send anything to Belarus, so really reliant on Russia. Um Politically, Lukashenko knows that he owes his continued uh, position in power to Putin. Um, And in fact, in September, maybe it was, um, or October of last year, um, Putin and Lukashenko ultimately signed a, a union pact treaty, which ties the countries even closer together. It was that sort of a natural... uh culmination of the fact that the that Lukashenko reached out to Putin and asked for support on the security side with all the protests that were going on after the uh, 2020 election? It Yeah, it, it likely was. Um, they were sort of, uh, certainly after that happened and, and Lukashenko started to look towards the east again, you know, certainly that was something that was going to come. Um, Putin, of course, has had his eyes and his mind on sort of reconstituting as much of the former Soviet Union as you possibly can, Belarus is an easy part. Yeah. Um, you know, because there are a lot of ties there to begin with. But even in Moldova, there's a there's a area called Transnistria, which Russia has sent peacekeeping forces right. to. Right. Um, you know, they kind of control that. You know, the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, Crimea. So as as Putin has sort of tried to reconstitute this. Um, you know, Belarus has become pretty easy pickings. And what a lot of Belarusians are worried about is that essentially Lukashenko will make the deal with uh, Putin to give up their sovereignty, their state sovereignty as an independent country. Um, to a certain extent, do you think that's already happened? I mean, they, they, Lukashenko and Putin agreed to do some joint military drills, some combined military drills. Uh, a lot of Russian military went in there. I think it was maybe late 2020, early 2021. And they really haven't left. 
the Russian military from the, Belarus. In fact, they've been reinforced heavily over the last couple of months. Yes, over the last couple of months, uh, under the guise of, of um, yeah, exercises. Um, <laughs> yeah, in, in fact, there are now Russian bases in, in Belarus, um, full-time permanent Russian bases in Belarus. So that, that started to happen. And again, you can just sort of see slowly over a period of time and, and probably accelerated as a result of the elections in, in 2020 and Western sanctions um, that Belarus really has started to become a part of Russia again. Again, still legally, technically, I guess, sovereign, but clearly um, just short of true annexation. <laughs> yeah, as as opposed to becoming another, you know, sort of rayon or area of Russia, um, yeah. still sort of holds its sovereignty, but in reality, completely reliant on Russia at this point. Interesting. That is interesting. So how does Belarus get along with, with her neighboring nations, uh, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Lat- Latvia? Um, up, up until probably last year, you know, they, they, they got along okay. Um, there was a lot of trade that went back and forth and, and people could kind of move relatively freely back and forth, more or less. But, but that's a, that's a hard border, right? Because it's not part of the That is a hard border because it's not a part of the Schengen zone. It's not part of the EU. Um, although interestingly enough, there are, are a fair number of, Previous to serving in, in Belarus, uh, I served in Moldova, which is former part of the Soviet Union. And, you know, I think the statistic is 75 to 80 percent of Moldovans have Romanian passports. Mm. Romania is now part of at least EU, or at least a, a, a yeah. member hoping to accede to the EU so they have some freedom of movement. Belarus, you still have an awful lot of people who, who have Polish passports. Not so much Lithuanian that I ran into, but Polish passports. And so they're able to move fairly freely or were able to move fairly freely before August 2020. Now not so much. And one of the things that Lukashenko did, um, which really uh, upset his neighbors, is he started literally to bring in Middle Easterners uh, into Belarus, telling them um, that, if you get here, you can get into the EU. So what ended up happening, and I'm sure people saw and heard about it, massive numbers of uh, immigrants uh, hoping to get to the EU, migrants hoping to get to the EU, would come into Belarus. The Belarusian government would pay for it. They'd put them up in hotels, and they would all move to the border of Poland and uh, Lithuania, hoping to get across the border. Well, you know, this was going to turn into a huge crisis, a huge mm-hmm. um, problem. So the EU shut its borders down, uh, in my opinion, rightfully so, um, seeing this happening. And it has caused major problems with its neighbors. Um, yeah. a- again, a crisis created by Lukashenko, clearly uh, created yeah, by Lukashenko. Yeah, on, on purpose. To, on purpose. To, to push the West. To so push to the West. So that's probably Putin really telling Lukashenko, hey, this is a good idea. Let's do this. <laughs> Putin certainly never said don't do it. Yeah, right. And when all this was going on, I think there was – Putin was pretty quiet about all this. Um, so – and again – Lukashenko saw this as an opportunity to push the West, to try to negotiate with him. Um, Is this that mindset that we seem to be seeing, even with uh, Putin, that deal from a position of strength? 
So you create a crisis that uh, is under your control, so you can get ec- extract uh, some sort of concessions from you know the other side. Exactly, same same playbook. And and as I've worked in former Soviet spaces, as I've negotiated agreements, as I've negotiated business agreements, as I've negotiated, what I've found is that it, it's negotiation from a position of strength. And that's really, in most cases, as I negotiate these types of things, what what my person across the table understands. Yeah, um, it's a completely different way of negotiating than it than it is here in the U.S. or the West or or somewhere else. Um, but yeah, I would say it's I would say it's out of the same playbook. It's maybe page ten out of one playbook and page twelve out of another. Yeah. Well, where do things stand right now today uh, on the Belarusian border with Poland and Lithuania and Latvia? So things have quieted down. Of course, it's winter over there. Um, things have quieted down. Um, Lukashenko has actually actually pulled the migrants back, and some of them, I think, are still in, in centers um, near the border, but not right on the border as they were before. Almost like detention centers, right? Almost like detention centers, yeah. yeah. They, aren't, they aren't going anywhere. Um, Probably not a fun place to be if you're a, a migrant that was lured in. Uh, yeah, and um, some migrants have gone back with the understanding that n- now they've, they've been sort of tricked into this and are a pawn in this whole east-west thing. Um, So they've started, some of them have started to go back, and I think the Belarusian government actually has helped to pay for some of them to go back. Um, Again, Lukashenko, I think, started to see if they weren't all going to get across the border, he had a major problem on his hands, (laughs) again, of his own making. Care and feeding of the people that he lured in, yeah. Yes, Yeah. yeah. So, Mark, all, all that said, right, um, how do you see the strategic picture playing out in and, in and around Belarus, especially with regard to what's happening between Russia and Ukraine? Uh, Belarus is clearly playing a role in that. There's a lot of Russian troops in Belarus, which is on the northern side of Ukraine, uh, Russian troops all along the Ukraine-Russia border, uh, Russian troops uh, down in Crimea, uh, probably in Transnistria. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely <laughs> yeah. there. Peace, yeah. Peacekeepers. Right, right. <laughs> so how do you see this playing out? What's Belarus's role in all of this? Well, I, I think Belarus's role in all this is, is what Putin wants it to be. It, it's, it's another chip on the board to be able to say, um, you know, to put his troops into, to be able to say, oh, it's just exercises, <sighs> but yet there are 30,000 Russian troops in Belarus, mm-hmm. um, l- literally, you know, a few hours' drive away from Kiev, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's not f- far from the <laughs> Belarusian no, border to, to no, Kiev. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so, uh, again, I think as, as Putin has set this up, um, it's clear to see that he has— created this crisis with the idea that, um, you know, this is what I want. You know, Russia is a powerful nation. You should be coming and talking to me about this. And if you want to solve this problem, you're going to have to come and talk to me about it. And you've seen the, the sort of number of people going off to Moscow now to talk to Putin, the big power broker. Yeah, not just the foreign ministers, but uh, heads of state. Heads of state, absolutely. Um, And 
so you know ultimately what's putin hoping to get out of this i i think people much smarter than i have this figured out that he, you know he he does have some security concerns some viable security concerns in his mind um and and also you know he understands that if he can recreate that buffer yeah, the Russian near abroad, right? The Russian near abroad is what he calls it. Um, if he can recreate that buffer, um, it's a of benefit to him from a security standpoint, but also makes him look like uh, you know a great statesman, a great you know leader of the of the world. And um, so Moscow starts to look like a center of power again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've often sort of, uh, in my discussions with other sort of career national security professionals, we sort of think to, my, to ourselves, it, it, if Russia didn't have slightly more nuclear weapons than the United States, would anybody care what Russia had to say? And probably not. Probably not. I mean, they're, they're a single, their sole economy really is fossil fuels, oil and gas. They don't really do much more. Yep. Uh, right now, that's actually sort of a big deal. I mean, you just talked about it a little while ago, the role that Russian oil and gas plays uh, for supporting Belarus uh, for heating and, and whatnot. Yep. Uh, Nord Stream 1 has been in operation for quite some time. Nord Stream 2 is theoretically coming online soon and you know, to supply Germany and, and most of Europe with natural gas coming out of Russia. So the... The politics that, that Russia plays here on the energy side is a very interesting dynamic, and Ukraine was part of that as well. There were pipelines coming out of Russia through Ukraine that uh, he shut down, yeah. uh, Putin did, uh, to punish the Ukrainians. Yep, yeah. And, and, and again, uh, you know, it has downstream, downstream effects, literally. Um, when that happened, that shut off a lot of the natural gas to Moldova. Mm -hmm. um, and literally, they were telling people in Moldova this winter to— plan for other options as far Start as cutting heating. down your trees yeah. now <laughs> as far as heating goes because there may be a chance that gas wouldn't be available they finally worked it out they finally got it worked out but um you know yeah energy is a big part of 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 putin's sort of pieces on the chessboard so to speak and yeah. and it and it drives their economy when you know, I mean, otherwise their economy isn't, I think, is actually smaller than the state of California's economy. Uh, but the big part of it is energy. And from energy, as we've seen with Nord Stream 2 and some other things, um, he has some cards to play when it comes to Europe. Europe has become fairly reliant on, on Russian energy yeah. uh, sources to the, to the point where, you know, he can pull some of those strings. The really interesting thing about that is even in Russia, from what I'm hearing, uh, there's a strong recognition that uh, the world needs to get off fossil fuels to stop climate change. And so what does Russia do economically when the only thing that they really produce and export is no longer used by anybody around the world? Yeah. What are they doing to diversify their economies? So that's another challenge that not only does Putin have to face, but Belarus, since they're so reliant on on Russian oil and gas exports uh, and processing of, of oil into fuels and stuff like that. Yeah. It's a problem for Belarus as well. Yes, yes, a, a huge problem. At least he does heavy machinery, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least he sells buses somewhere, <laughs> yeah. although with sanctions, I'm not even sure where he's selling buses anymore. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Mark, I'm going to give you the final word here. Uh, you know, you've, you've taken a look at this situation in Belarus for, for quite a while. You, you, you spent a lot of time training to go there, even though you only got six weeks on the ground in Minsk. <laughs> what else should people know about, about Belarus? Well, I, I think the interesting thing about Belarus is that, um, you know, people in Minnesota may look at it and say, ah, Belarus really doesn't mean anything. Well, actually it does because the, the fact of the matter is as you travel around the world and you see these countries that are run by authoritarian governments or by dictators, um, they they trample the human rights of their citizens. You know, essentially Lukashenko doesn't really care about yeah. human rights. Um, and it And it creates pockets that ultimately – you know, in some senses, want to expand. You know, there. Are, I'm sure there are people looking at Lukashenko, saying, "Oh, uh, you know, as as a leader or future leader in some country, saying, oh, well, if I just follow that playbook, I'll be able to do the same thing.'" Um, and that's just not not good from a you know worldwide perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the world has become very small in the last. I don't know what we've globalized. Yeah, the entire economy is globalized. Yeah, yeah. And so ultimately, what happens in Belarus does have an effect here. I mean, you're seeing it in the in the stock market with the way it's going, and and what's happening in Ukraine and Belarus, uh, energy sector. You see what's happening with the economy. Um, you know, as a result of COVID. Um, so again, you know, Belarus itself may not have all of that direct effect on Minnesota, but ultimately what's happening there with democracy and human rights mm-hmm. and those types of things do have an effect just because we have become so globalized. So what I hear you saying is what happens elsewhere in the world should matter to us here in Minnesota. Yes, yeah. ab- absolutely. Be- because ultimately it it does affect us, yeah. maybe not directly. Third and fourth order impacts. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Mark Jorgensen, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Uh, Any publications or books, you know, things like that that you might recommend uh, to people if they want to learn a little bit more about Belarus? Um, To be honest with you, uh, you know, as as far as just general Belarus stuff, um, you know, Wikipedia has got some really good basic information on Belarus, and, and it talks about the August 2020 elections, if anybody wants to dig into that a little bit deeper. It talks about some of the economy and the health care and sort of those sorts of things more in detail. Um, for current events, um, I actually like the Atlantic Council. They put out a, a very good – used to be weekly. Now it's daily with everything happening. Yeah. A, a, a good piece on Ukraine and oftentimes Belarus and Russia as well. Um and the other resource I would send people to is that, um, although I'm no longer at the embassy in, in Minsk, there are still people there. It still is up and running, and the U.S. Embassy website has some some good basic information uh, that's there. And, and one other thing really quick is, just so you know, Lukashenko not only you know kicked everybody out of the embassy, basically, we have five Americans there uh, left, but he also shut down all of the programs, all of the public affairs programs, all of the USAID programs, mm. um, you know, those tended to be programs that were focused on rule of law, democracy, some of those types of things. 
and he just basically shut those down. There, there, there's no no opposition left in Belarus. He shut down NGOs. He shut down uh, free press. He shut down embassy programs, both the U.S. embassy and the Western European embassies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is, just, is he also playing up sort of a Belarusian nationalism tone? I mean, is that one of his his moves? Yes, um, but, but I think because it happens to be convenient, not necessarily because he, okay. he really thinks that's important, but it's, it probably tends to be convenient. Yeah. Um, I, I ask that because, you know, you're you're also a career national security professional, and our, our, I, I, would, I would suspect that you and I have a shared experience in that when we see nationalism rise in a country around the world, that's generally not a good sign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and again, I, I think you have some of the same issues in Belarus, but I think in this case it tends to be because it's, it's convenient at this time for Lukashenko. Um, rally around the flag. Rally around the flag, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Mark, thank you very much again. I appreciate you making the drive down from your home and uh, joining us this morning in studio. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Happy to do it. Uh, fun to talk about Belarus. Yeah, even though you'll add six weeks there, <laughs> where they PNG'd you, <laughs> Lukashenko. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish for your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.